and welcome to another episode of the New Model Advisor podcast. I'm Natasha Turner, Features Editor, and I'm joined today by Christine Dawson, Hello. reporter at MA. Hello. Ed Gillespie, the co-founder of Sustainability Agency Futura, and Tanya Payne, Investment Specialist at Into Planning and Board Director at UK Sustainable Investment and Finance Association. Hello, Hello to Hello. you all. Hi. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about sustainable investing and we're going to go straight into it this week. We're going to start by talking about the current climate for this ever-growing area before getting into the nitty-gritty how-to kind of things. So to start off, Ed and Tanya, can you just describe the current climate for ethical investing at the moment? What's going on at the moment? So what's going on at the moment is that it's growing and it's growing significantly. Here's some stats. Investment Association, they report on ethical funds. Let's use that as a broad, broad term for sustainable. Actually, sustainable is a much better term. And they're saying that roughly retail funds in the UK are about standing now, kind of the install base, if you like, 1.2%. But the sales, the sales in the last 18 months are running at about 2%. So 60, 80% growth going on at the moment. So that sounds like it's steady, it's growing fast, but here's the change. Last week, the fourth largest fund manager in France announced that they were going to go 100% ESG, that's environmental, social and governance, so real sustainable investment, by 2020. 2020's in what, 45 minutes? (laughs) It's coming fast. And this is not niche players, this is not 1%, this is billions. So if we look at UCSIF, so UCSIF is the UK Sustainable and Investment Finance Association. So it's a citywide body. You've got retail financial advisors, you've got institutional investors, you've got insurance companies, investment consultants, pension funds, charities, the works, including the banks. That's a body that's looking to promote responsible investment. And how much do they have under management? A trillion. So the climate is, this is big money. Mm-hmm. Big, big money. The major, major players are all over it. And retail is lagging behind. And therein lies a business opportunity. <laughs> yeah, and I, I would just add to that. I'd say I think investors are also waking up to the fact, you know, that this is a, a challenge. And it's somewhat paradoxical or paradoxical to invest in returns for your future quality of life uh, in businesses and organisations or funds that may directly be undermining that future quality of life. Um, and I think there's also the financial reasons, uh, you know, both negative and positive. So I think negatively, the way you made money in the past um, won't necessarily be the way you make money in the future. Uh, we talk a lot about oil and gas companies. You know, they're a stalwart investment historically for fund managers with reliable dividends and returns. Yeah, that's rapidly changing. And we live in, you know, volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous times. Um, and, and you're going to see surging renewables. We've got electrification of the global vehicle fleet which leads to top slicing of demand and profit uh, of those big fossil fuel businesses, plus this risk of unburnable carbon. You know, we've got 80% of coal reserves, 50% of gas, and a third of oil reserves need to remain unburned if we've got a chance of two degrees. And it's not just me saying this, limiting climate change to two degrees, it's uh, that radical left-wing anarchic eco-fundamentalist Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, has also said most, most fossil fuel reserves can't be burnt. You know, and you get the flip side of that argument from someone like uh, BP's CEO, Bob Dudley, who says, let's be clear, this is not a race to renewables. Uh, to which I reply, who says, Bob, bring it on. Um, and I think there's a positive side to this as well. It's the fact that, you know, as Tanya's saying, good environmental and social governance businesses and funds tend to perform better. 
and we see it time and time again with portfolios including these clean tech, renewables and electric vehicle businesses excluding old economy smokestack stocks that carry increasing risk and liability uh, and in some ways 2017 was a tipping point um, and because they're performing better um, I like to quote um, the former Chief Operating Officer of Bretton Manger, Nick Candler, who says, uh, doing the right thing seems to be the right thing to do. So, you know, be still my, <laughs> be still my beating heart that having principles might even be profitable. Uh, you know, and I think just what, for, for lastly, I was just saying, let's not underestimate the ethical moral argument. You know, is it the right, responsible and respectable way to make a return? You know, there's a great cartoon by the New Yorker artist Tom Toro with a ragged suited man addressing three children around a campfire who says, yes, the planet got destroyed, but for a brief time, we created a lot of value for shareholders. <laughs> yeah. So let's start actually with taking the value for shareholders right, from Ed's point. Let's say, what are the performance figures telling us? Well, they're telling us if we take MSCI World Index over five years, and let's go not on the one year, not on the three year, let's go on the five year performance cycle. Oil and gas has so substantially underperformed, like over 40%, that it's making the advice from advisors not only look very poor, but be poor. From an objective point of view, it is, in a way, pasting values onto clients that belong to the advisor, where an advisor says, actually, we don't think that climate change is that important. We don't think that the ESG, the environmental, social and governance piece, is so important. They are volunteering, you could say, some of their clients for serious losses. Now, if we take that from retail all the way up to big charity, the Wellcome Trust got about a billion pounds. They've lost over 130 million on their fossil fuel investments alone. Now, there isn't Yikes. a single, a single retail advisor client that wants to see this kind mm. of big loss in their portfolio, however small they are compared to Wellcome. You know, and I think it teaches us that actually the institutional investors are looking at this very seriously. Mm -hmm. They are manufacturing funds. So there are for an IFA who wants to really listen to their clients, have those kind of long-term conversations, thoughtful conversations about this and the next generation. There are plenty, plenty of choices. So I would say... Can you really be sure that you're giving appropriate advice to your clients mm. if you're not having these conversations? Mm -hmm. The data is showing us on climate change that funds that deeply take that into account are performing better over the long term. The data shows us, and this is academic, robust evidence, that funds that have strong scores on governance, where the investment managers are looking at the governance factors, they have a boost to the return. And companies that are taking social factors like good working conditions or gender diversity um, at senior management level are showing stronger performance. So we were just Makes sense. talking before we press play on the recording just now um, about clients potentially not asking about these things for whatever reason. So um, what would you say to an advisor who maybe is interested in um, all the things you've been saying, but, you know, their clients just aren't asking about it, potentially? Great question. And actually, 
my service is never presented as one that specialises in responsible, sustainable investment advice. Mm -hmm. I am a mainstream advisor like all the listeners, but I know that I have very long-term relationships with clients and they look for dispassionate, thoughtful and, and current events aware, if you like, advice. And they're paying and, you know, it's not cheap. Mm -hmm. So good place to start is by having the conversation and really listening to what the client wants, fits beautifully into KYC and to know your customer, and say, actually, there are options available in investment funds that suit a whole panoply of clients. It could be environment, it could be animal welfare, it could be tobacco, it could be gender lens investing, there's a new one, right? actually supporting companies that have a, a strong or a improving gender balance. There are many, many options. And actually feeling comfortable as an advisor that you're giving more appropriate advice. So the onus is really on the advisor then. To just intro introduce it. Mm -hmm. And what's been so interesting is that every time I said, should we look at the big picture, what's important to you? Clients open up. They, you know, and um, it makes clients sticky, if you like. You know, it, it makes them want to stay with you for a long time because they're listening. You know, they're being listened to and they're having meaningful conversations. And they understand that you're thinking about the next generation. Often this is about inheritance and helping their children and their grandchildren. And who wants to have a world <laughs> and if it's only just their retirement that, you know, where the planet's died? Mm. There was um, something recently that we picked up on was the EU's high-level expert group on sustainable finance. Mm. Earlier this year, they published a report um, which looked at um, informed consent on sustainability issues being an essential requirement uh, within the uh, investment chain. Mm. So this is, is the terms that they're using. Um, they're talking about clarified duty, which would require all participants in the investment chain to proactively seek to understand the sustainability interests and preferences of their clients, members or beneficiaries. Um, this would certainly interest uh, NMA readers, uh, <laughs> listeners, <laughs> I'd say, um, that the fact that these kind of ideas are being floated at the EU level. Uh, we're saying that the, the onus is on the advisor to introduce this. Mm. What about if it was compulsory? Mm. Is, that, is that preferable? Is that, is that so, a good so idea? Th so this is, how does it affect me today in my business as an advisor? And actually, it really does. So it affects every one of the NMA readers, and, and in this way. To cut with the alphabet soup, it's high-level expert group on sustainable finance. So what is that? It's a report. It's got a range of recommendations to hardwire sustainability into the EU's policy framework. So trip, 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 all the way down to the retail advisors, and they're saying that Britain and other EU countries will, and there is an action plan with dates, need to oblige investment consultants of all types to ask their clients about their sustainability preferences. So whether or not you arrive at this podcast sympathetic <laughs> or, you know, ab yeah, absolutely against, it will become part of you know, FCA compliance. Mm -hmm. 
right? and very shortly. So now's the time to get in and start really understanding. Well, it's what regulation's for, isn't it? I mean, it's common sense to set some parameters to compel investors to make ethical considerations or at the very least be transparent and honest about the possible negative implications of also profitable stocks. Uh, the way I would phrase it is, you know, how much how much blood do you like on your hands? None? <laughs> a few drops? Or are you happy to plunge in up to the wrists? Um, some of the key ideas in the report, I think, like, you know, you mentioned mandated disclosure of climate risk is also in there, I think could be really transformative. You know, when you get Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, you know, managing $6 trillion worth of assets, challenging companies on their slowness to report on their climate risk and saying, you know, in his infamous Darth Vader moment, you know, whilst we are patient investors, we are not infinitely patient. You know, I think this is a real sea change uh, and it has to be a transparency about the negativity, but also enthusiasm and inspiration around the positivity that can come from this. And that whole H leg and sustainability piece can benefit your business. You have long term relationship with clients. I have got huge amounts of business from people coming to me saying, my advisor didn't listen, my advisor didn't ask about my preferences, or my advisor just didn't have the knowledge to provide me what I wanted. And you personally, as an advisor, have that opportunity to build a business that as you pass it on to the next generation, you can feel proud of. And I think something we don't talk about very much, but this is a business which actually is very close to the heart. You have the, those intimate conversations with clients and you, you think about the same issues yourselves. And actually weaving sustainability into the heart of your practice and your advice makes the business as a whole more meaningful. Mm. It's inspiring. It's <laughs> um, so something else that comes up is the sustainable development goals. Um, just for some, this is going to sound a bit like jargon. So yeah. let's bust that jargon. <laughs> right. What are jargon. the sustainable development goals? And why is, when you're looking at impact investing, why does it tend to be tied into different goals? Um, what's mm. going on there? You know, the, so it starts in the United Nations, and they've agreed these international goals. They run from 2015 to 2030. They replace the previous, people may have heard of them, Millennium Development Goals, which ran from 2000 to 2015. But those were for poorer countries. These new ones, the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, they're for everyone. And what they're doing is, think of it as three levels. They're setting direction, they're then setting targets, and they're setting measurements for different aspects of improving the world. So the goals are general, and I'll give you an example. One would, is better work conditions. So there's the general goal. Then it's got specific objectives, which, example, ending slavery. And then it's got specific indicators. Here we go for the UK, the Human Slavery Act 2015, introduced by Theresa May when she was at the Home Office. And it's about saying, making sure that in your procurement policy, or if you're getting work done on your home in a renovation, that actually no slave labor has, has been involved. And there's sadly, a tremendous amount of slave labour in this country. However proud we are of doing what we thought was abolition in the 1800s, it's back with a vengeance. So how does that map on to the work of retail advice as well? I'd say not perfectly because these sustainable, sustainable development goals don't map easily onto the investable universe, but they're incredibly useful because they're focusing the debate Fund managers are manufacturing funds that 
address the sustainable development goals. And even with something like the Human Slavery Act, if your clients care about that, or if you do, you can actually just engage with the fund manager by saying, do we, you know, can you provide any reassurance that when you look at the universe of investees for the fund, that all the candidate investees are complying with the Human Slavery Act 2015? So you can be very specific about it. Can I throw in an emergency question, even though we're doing really well on this? Mm. Emergency <laughs> question, I, it's, it's an, I've just got this list of emergency questions, and I want to sneak <laughs> at least one in. Um, so, right, question for you both. Uh, would you rather be a head in a jar on a pristine planet or a brain in a robot on a wasteland world? <laughs> you can see how this links into sustainability. Yeah, it links in I mean, perfectly. I it's an easy segue. A head in a jar on a pristine planet or a brain in a robot on, on a, a devastated world? On a wasteland world. A wasteland world. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I think I'd probably want to be a head in a jar. Okay, so yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I'm not sure the difference what the difference between a head in a jar and a brain in a robot is. Though. Well, in a jar's not going anywhere, is it? Yeah. It's just, that might just be on a table. But, and then that's about being nice in the view. present moment. And then it's probably not the most satisfying thing to be in the present moment. On a you just meditate, just meditate in a jar. Way through this life, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the great thing about the jar is that yeah, even if life isn't fun, because you know it's either going to be quite hot, right, or <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be a lot of fun. But you've got a view. Well, yeah, exactly. hey, you know, most okay, so of you, because you know, the yeah. view from the wasteland is going to be really poor. Yeah, true. It's changeable, but poor, so. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> good. Okay, well, I'm glad we got that one done. I'm um, glad I'm that in my end. <laughs> <laughs> God, that's you. So I'm just trying to think how I can weave that into advice for clients, but <laughs> you'll tell me later. <laughs> All right, well, just before we move uh, on then, it's just staying on this kind of the world we're in now, the the picture that we're in. Um, Ed, you were a speaker at our conference this year back yes. in January. I don't know why I've written July there, because it was definitely back in January. It's definitely January. <laughs> so there we go, I was thinking about my birthday instead. Um, and uh, Christine wrote up um, your talk on our website, and we were just going through the comments to see what, what people had said. And one commenter was a bit concerned about China, so while we're staying in this kind of global context area, they said China burns more than half the coal in the world and generated more than a quarter of CO2. Stranded assets and even Trump are trivial compared with this. So how would you reply to that commentary? Well, apart from the kind of the classic ecologist's reply, which is it's complicated, mm. um, I would say, well, it's, of course it's true that China is the biggest burner of coal in the world and that coal is still over half of its energy mix. But then again, we're almost certainly, again, at a key transition moment with many analysts suggesting that coal use has already peaked in China in 2017. But equally, with a quarter of the world's population, China is entitled to emit a quarter of the CO2. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, so their per capita emissions mean that they actually rank 47th globally in terms of emissions of carbon per capita at seven and a half tonnes per person, which is only marginally above the UK, mm -hmm. around six and a half tonnes per person, whereas the US is breezing along nicely at 16 and a half tons per person. So you have to see it in context. So Trump is definitely not trivial um, in this, given his predilection for new oil and gas exploration of unburnable assets um, and the likely redundant pipeline infrastructure that he's now forcing through Native American land. So I think it's also worth bearing in mind that China is actually on the flip side of it. Uh, their investments in clean energy hit over $130 billion in 2017, which is up 24% on the year before and is almost half the total global investment in renewables. So Yes, they're still burning a lot of coal, but they're also leading the new energy revolution. Right. Um, so 
yes, they're not <laughs> trivial. They're actually looking towards the future. Um, and I think it'll be Trump that's viewed as the throwback from history. Okay. Um, you mentioned about the institutional versus retail space. There are some differences going on there. Why is it that the retail space seems to be behind when it comes to offering sustainable finance solutions for you know, ones that these advisors that we write for can um, access, and mm -hmm. especially on um, on the divestment issues as well? Mm. I, I honestly I don't understand why the institutional space is quite as so far ahead. Mm. Well, for a start, the institutional space is just organised into a small number of big players. So they're able to be more nimble. And the advisor market is full of large numbers of really quite small businesses. So changing everything happens more slowly. I think also that on the retail side, there's just a bit of reticence and lack of understanding about how the portfolio without oil and gas will perform versus the peer group. Now, the research is solid. The evidence is there of outperformance. We talked before about losses. What we haven't yet spoken about is just great returns that you can have by investing positively in renewable energy. And that's where the smart money has been for some years. But that evidence hasn't yet trickled down into the retail space. Yeah, and I actually think the real question here is a political one uh, as well. I think divestment for fossil fuels raises a number of big questions. You know, is it hypocritical to divest now when we'd still be using fossil fuels in some way, shape or form? Um, for a couple of decades. Um, does divestment actually affect the economics of energy? Uh, and can company strategy actually be better influenced by remaining a shareholder and becoming an, an activist shareholder? Uh, and actually, I think this is about market signals and politics. And one of the reasons that the institutional um, pressure has been greater is that divestment sends a clear message or requirement to, to the organisations you're investing in to change. Um, so regardless of the financial sophistry that many analysts use to continue to justify fossil fuel investment, I think particularly new exploration, the divestment movement is global and growing. We've got 700 plus institutions now in 76 countries already pulled out five and a half trillion dollars. Now that sends quite an unequivocal message, I think, because that's assets moving en masse across the world. The performance figures make the case for good retailer advice to be come out soon in absolute terms or gradually, but make it soon from fossil fuels. And when you've got the governor of the Bank of England saying, this is a threat to the entire financial system, it takes a very brave financial advisor with plenty <laughs> of long stop risk to say, no, let's stay in, <laughs> no change. Okay, let's get down to some of the nitty gritty then, some of the actual funds. Now, I went to our head of investment research, Frank Talbot, um, just for some names of funds that he sort of knew that people were liking in an ethical sense. He mentioned the Jupiter Ecology Fund, managed by Charlie Thomas, Impacts Environment Market, and Pictay Clean Energy. So why, why are these the good ones? Are there other good ones? And uh, what should advisors be mm. looking out for specifically? I'm, I'm going to defer to Tanya on this one. I think as a futurist, I try not to make predictions or recommendations. Uh, I'd prefer to kind of stretch the imagination of the possible rather than providing racing tips. But I'm sure Tanya has some good racing tips. Well, thank you. And let's, let's just check with Ed after the podcast that his investments are really reflecting his values. So on to the, the funds. So let's be led by the performance. Mm -hmm. That's what matters to clients in particular. So on the performance record, the three funds did 
you've mentioned certainly uh, Jupiter ecology and impacts environmental market um, have been strong. But I would say for those three fund managers, they have a long track record, and there are some others. Eden Tree used to be called Ecclesiastical, Webb, Lion Trust, Royal London. You want a fund house that has been doing this for a long time. And what's been really useful, actually, in making sure that we have long-run, stable, strong returns is a research team that's been going a long time, an approach to sustainability that actually is infused throughout the investment process. And I think that a good place for advisors to start is the suite of funds provided by Eden Tree, Webb, Land Trust and Royal London. Royal London Ethical, uh, Land Trust used to be called uh, Alliance Trust, previously Aviva Sustainable Investment Funds. Uh, Webb is equities, Eden, Eden Tree is fixed interest and equities, and they've also got multi-assets. So don't worry about having any patches in your asset allocation. There is something for everyone. And there's between two and 300 retail funds. Oaks and investment uh, trusts. And do you think the um, some of the kind of places that do research on this, when they're compiling information about these funds, is it uh, is it enough? Is it comprehensive? You know, sometimes maybe you get a one to five scale on mm -hmm. how ethical something is. Mm -hmm. If that's your f the first thing you're seeing, I mean, is that enough information to go on? So. More information is good, but at the same time, every advisor is time constrained. And every client meeting, however warm, trusting, thoughtful, it's also time constrained. So you have to make sure that you cover the regulatory piece, that you, you, know, you have a, a good, friendly conversation, and you communicate the key points on the investment. So actually, ratings can be quite helpful in that regard. However, as with any rating system, they have their faults. So I think it's important to have a lot of transparency on process underlying the ratings. And if you're particularly interested, I happen to be, then you'll, you'll dig down into the detail. But generally, they're actually really rather useful. Um, I'd say a caveat on ratings would, um, would include this. They tend to tilt towards big companies that can produce a lot of data. So in small cap and mid cap, it gets a bit thin. They tend to be tilted towards companies that are subject to environmental regulations and data requirements, like in the European Union. So they'll be tilted towards the EU, a bit less to America, and be a bit thin uh, in Asia Pacific. But generally, direction of travel, useful. And let's not forget, more and more clients are searching for things on their phone. So <laughs> it works very well on mobile devices. Mm -hmm. And frankly, if we're thinking about the next generation and really using the power of money to do good, as well as making sure we give solid returns-focused advice that will be successful, ratings is just one of the many things that will help us on our way. So there are a couple of areas as well, moving um, from funds onto more products like uh, pensions, ISAs, and um, sort of 
other areas, maybe let's look at hedge funds and asset classes like property. I'm just sort of broadening this out here. Um, where are the challenges? If you're looking to invest ethically, like where are the opportunities and challenges here? Like, are there some pension funds that are doing this really well? Some ICE that are doing really well? You know, um, hedge funds, I think they're making some changes at the moment so that you can start to look at those as options as well. Uh, yeah, any tips for us? I don't know, again, I'll, def I'll defer to Tanya, but I will say I did have a meeting just as a kind of, again, a barometer moment uh, of how things are changing with someone from private who's setting up a new private equity fund as a benefit corporation only to invest in ethical businesses. So I think when you get the barbarians at the gate who are now going, actually, sustainability and ESG is the performance benchmark for really high rates of return and, and, and reward in the future, then you know it's when private equity starts to pick up on it and, and, and put the money, the serious money <laughs> in. Yeah. So on the ISA side, actually, yeah, just like a SIP, you'll have the same range of funds and you've got hundreds out there. And then you've got whole investment houses, which while they may not promote their funds as being specifically sustainable, actually they're doing this ESG, environmental, social and governance factors, all the way through the investment house. And Jupiter, you mentioned Jupiter Ecology, is a good example of that. And I remember being at a, an expert roundtable on responsible investment the morning that the story broke about Volkswagen, okay? And interestingly, the head of research at Jupiter was there, and he said, you know, there are plenty of our competitors that have lost 30, 40% on the capital value of their Volkswagen investments, and we've lost nothing. Because <laughs> for years they followed it on a governance basis, mm. they'd consistently scored badly at Volkswagen, and therefore it wasn't in the portfolio. So there is valuation risk, and there's, of course, dividend risk, because Volkswagen you know, certainly not paying dividends the way they used to. Um, but to the point of, you know, is, are there options out there? Yes, in ISAs, in pensions, and in whole fund houses. Okay. Um, and some of the pushback that uh, I think this whole sector gets, if we can call it that, would be um, it's expensive. So... Bizarre. Yeah, I, to Bizarre. <laughs> I mean, exactly. that's just not the case. So mm. I think we dealt okay. with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you look at the OCFs, the um, on the funds, they are no higher nor lower. Mm. Mm -hmm. But for people, maybe they've got uh, smaller amounts to invest in. Mm -hmm. and would it be fair to say that they would have fewer options if if they want to invest ethically? So, yes. you know, most advisors would only deal with people who have, you know let's say around £100,000 to invest mm -hmm. um, and a bit lower than that they can sort of cater for them but then if it's like catering for somebody who's got £50,000 but also wants to invest ethically it's like perhaps and actually happily no so because the ongoing charges figure is is priced in as a percentage basis whether you've got £100 or £100,000 you're paying the same level so um, actually sustainable funds are no more expensive but crucially the risk is much lower that you're going to be having things like you know, fossil fossil fuel slumps on your valuations and also the opportunities are much higher that you're going to make money so even at the same price which it is it's a much better bet ed what kind of criticism do you hear often uh, about any of this do you ever get pushback from people? Um, I think you get all sorts of kind of um, negative comments. I mean, I think 
Tanya's doing a great job of busting some of the kind of populist myths, I mm. think, around these things. I think, you know, that it's expensive, that the rewards and returns aren't as good, that it's a niche. And I, I think none of those things are true anymore. And I think the big, the biggest problem I have is, is again, changing that narrative mm -hmm. around these type, of th th these type of areas because they're seen as specialisations and they're not. They're increasingly mainstream and they're the future. And so uh, I think the, the real issue here is about shifting our own narrative understanding of the way the world is currently working and the way it needs to work and our role as investors and fund managers in helping to deliver that and making it happen. And I think that's the huge exciting thing. As I say, it goes back to what I was referring to earlier. It's like the way you made money in the last 20 years is not the way you're going to make money in the next 20. Uh, there is an inflection point and in some ways it's about saying, you know, quite bluntly, which side of history do you want to be on? Uh, do you want to be on the side of the regressive um, team who are sort of trying to make money in the last dying gasps of the old economy or were you one of the braver pioneers who could see the future and wanted to have a role in shaping it? And were you an advisor who actually listened to your clients, responded to what they wanted, gave them strong, reliable returns while meeting some of those deeper needs that they come to you mm. with, which are often just not articulated mm. in the first meeting but come out very clearly over time? And just to Ed's point, because there is just this very strange idea that it's countercultural, that it's niche, <laughs> that it's unusual, that it's not mainstream. How's this for mainstream? In a single week, we have the governor of the Bank of England, and we have that tiny, tiny retail investor known as the queen of the country. <laughs> and she says, you know, I've been talking to David Attenborough I'm really you know, unhappy about plastics pollution. I would like to have you know, um, this and this you know, coming through from the, the Commonwealth as a way of addressing these problems. She wants to have forests donated by you know, large tracts of land converted to forestation across the Commonwealth. So if ever you have any, any client or even a sliver of a thought crossing your mind like a little swallow flapping flapping, that this is niche. <laughs> Just think of the Queen of the Bank of England. <laughs> and that's the establishment as it gets. <laughs> it really it? does. Yeah. So I think going. the question really is, why are you not doing it? What's yeah. taking so long? How can we help you? I'd love to help you. So I think now, not related to investing, but a lot of people feel helpless in their own lives. We were talking earlier about plastic cups, right? So. Just going back to your day to day, it can maybe be hard to be completely sustainable. And one question we had on our website um, was someone asked, well, and they have not, they're yet to hear all your e reasons why you should invest, but why can't advisors uh, carry on making their money for their client and then ask the client or themselves to donate to charity? <laughs> so can you offset things in this way? And why not? It's interesting. <laughs> this, is, this reminds me of the, uh, the pastiche offset of climate um, change and carbon sequestration, which was called cheat neutral, which was <laughs> basically for people who wanted to be unfaithful to their partners, uh, but absolve themselves of the guilt. Right. So therefore, they'd invest in people who would remain faithful to their particular mm -hmm. spouses or partners. So it was a kind of like a guilt offset. I mean, I think, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The charitable donation <laughs> is fine. Um, but I think, you know, th those charities will largely be focused on addressing the problem the, the investments themselves have created. Right. So it's a classic kind of disconnected, isolated, atomized, short-term view. So, you know, you're basically saying, I'll make my charitable donations end of pipe to clean up the mess that the 
my investments have created through their own performance. And uh, I think it's far better to invest more wisely up front, surely. You know, that mm -hmm. would make far more sense to me. And my answer is just a single word. Perverse. <laughs> <laughs> With an exclamation mark exactly. at the end. So, you know, the issue there on that proposition, and I think it's an interesting one because actually this does you know, fall into philosophy a bit. Um, the problem is that you've funded bad companies in making the money, if you make the money, right? Yeah. And that is such a weak <laughs> assumption, right? And I think, you know, listen to the podcast, you'll hear why. Right? But then once the pollution's been produced on this model, you need to spend money to get rid of it. So mm -hmm. there's a really good chance you make less money. And from the less money, you're going to try <laughs> to somehow alleviate the problem that you yourself have, have created. So back to my summary, perverse. <laughs> good summary. Yeah. Okay. Infidelity and perversity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't see that one coming in. An emergency question. Okay. A cool. Juncture. Right. Here's <coughs> Next one. Would you rather dispense coins from your hands or grow plants instead of hair? <laughs> <laughs> Does that even make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I would so love to dispense coins from my hands. They would yeah. be really high-value va high ones, right? How, how really high. So, so, so for yeah, me, they'd be like be made of gold or some other kind of precious metal. Okay. And then I could pump it into all kinds of things that need doing in the world to leave the world a better place and then you know what if yeah on the other model i'm going to be what growing plants out of my head i'm probably not going to live longer than a few hours <laughs> but at least i'll okay. leave the world a better place i think i mean you would you you could do this for years in in the way i've imagined this yeah. <laughs> i'd still much rather give away the money and That's actually fine. you might influence the market though you might just you know even better. Generating currency. <laughs> even better because you know i came to this podcast from a talk by Dame Stephanie Shirley, and she has to date given away 68 million, and boy, she looks a happy woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as yeah. a bald man, I'd be happy for anything to be growing out my <laughs> <laughs> Okay, cool. So finally, can we look at digital currencies? Uh, some people are saying these are the future. Are they really the future? Uh, <laughs> as a futurist, uh, and what, what are the environmental ethical issues um, with them as well? Oh, blimey, digital currencies. Um, I think the short answer, um, seems we, we're doing well at being very pithy today, is nobody knows. And if they do, or if they say they do, they're lying. Um, when the Bitcoin bubble burst, obviously um, earlier this year, but that's not to say it's over. And I think that whilst there are legitimate criticisms of the environmental energy impacts of Bitcoin mining, you know, that are pretty horrendous in terms of the energy intensity and the carbon, um, there's no doubt digital currencies will have a role to play um, and no institutions like being disintermediated as cryptocurrency does to the banks, um, least of all financial ones. So I think for me particularly interesting is, is the potential for transnational transactions beyond national currencies and the creation of currencies also create real value, not just up, hyped up stock market style bubbles. Um, I think Ethereum still has potential in the medium term with because of its smart contract capabilities, um, disintermediate, disintermediate lawyers, it's easy for me to say, uh, but there are also cryptocurrencies designed to create social value too, and I think that's where the real potential lies. So um, I came across one the other day, which will enable people to monetize their DNA anonymously for, for medical research. So it could be a kind of a humanitarian benefit internationally, but also a personal financial benefit to you. So it's, it's, it's essentially creating a commercial value out of an asset that you hold, uh, and could be trained trained by some kind of DNA coin. Um, but once again, the future is a choice, and we've got to kind of we've got to ask the right questions if we're going to create the future we want. And I would say, 
actually, maybe it's the future, maybe not, but it is the wrong question. Yeah. Uh, the question is, what's the environmental cost? We have an existing system of physical and virtual money. Uh, the physical money, the coins and notes, yeah, cost a bit to produce, but actually money is increasingly digital, cashless transactions rising, rising. So if you look at the full energy costs and the environmental implications of Bitcoin and every other digital currency, because there's quite a few, it's enormous. And you know what? Rather than using that energy and building those server farms to host it, because it takes hardware as well as energy and lots of precious metals and mining, what we could do for the world with that energy and those precious metals is fantastic. Let's end with the Sustainable Development Goals. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a world that we would feel proud of leaving? As we sold our businesses, we retired, and we left this little planet, even with our head in a jar. Amen to that. Right, well, thanks very much, Tanya and Ed. Thank you very much. So just to finish off Christine and the way we always do on the NMA podcast is we like to engage in uh, Twitter and our comment section and please do keep commenting um, things as you can hear. Um, if people are in, then they will answer some of your questions. So that's great. But we always end with uh, who won Twitter this week? So who won Twitter this week, Christine? Should we say that Neville Southall won? He, he is a former Everton goalkeeper and it was about two weeks ago he allowed the sex worker and advocacy resistance movement to take over his Twitter feed. Pretty cool. That is Quite cool. novel. Yeah. That's something you see every day. This week he allowed a 15-year-old Labour Party member to take over his Twitter feed. That's very interesting. That's running as we speak. I think it has made a big stir on Twitter. I think yeah. it's evident that even we are talking about this and neither of us know how to pronounce, pronounce his surname. And, I don't even uh, know how to pronounce his surname. So clearly we're not Everton fans, but now we know. <laughs> so he's doing something right. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting campaigning tactic, isn't it? And um, it seems yeah. to be working well for him. Well, I mean, maybe new model advisor should try this or perhaps another advice firm could get someone. In fact, if there's any marketing people out there listening, that's, I'll give you that one for free. Maybe you should try this new yeah. Twitter tag. But yes, you're right, he was. If they haven't been looking at Twitter the last two weeks, <laughs> which is this one, is for free. Yes, yeah. exactly. This was, this was <laughs> a big one. And uh, yes, I think I think he's done really well. And it's uh, it's a good idea. This, it's definitely uh, blown up Twitter this week. So. All right, winner. Winner. Declared. There Neville. Neville something. <laughs> Neville football. Right, so <laughs> remember you can listen to each of our podcasts via the hub on our website or by subscribing through iTunes, so just search for New Model Advisor. And while you're there on iTunes, you can leave us a review telling us what you think, or you can just tweet us your thoughts to New Model Advisor.